0: You can take your Bibles and turn them to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Um, and I neglected to say uh, for our visitors at the top of the service, uh, if you are visiting, there are little welcome cards in the seat backs in front of you, and uh, before you leave today, if you can uh, fill that out and uh, you can drop it off in the um, the little black box by the doors on the way out, that would be great. If you have any questions uh, about the church or any way we can serve you uh, or your family, just uh, let us know. Um, John chapter 14. Now, I would imagine probably all of us at one time or another have desired to have Jesus right here among us, present in the flesh. Uh, If you're like me, uh, you would have thought maybe on more than one occasion how wonderful that would be, uh, to be able to talk with Jesus, to be able to listen to Jesus teach audibly, uh, to spend time with Jesus to experience His encouragement and His comfort during difficult trials, uh, uh, during times of despair and fear, uh, to have His assurance that you'd be okay and that your life was safe and secure in His hands. And we just we, we have the sense that we, we just know that if we had Jesus here with us, we could face anything. But with Jesus gone and distant and unseen, what hope do we have to face the future with confidence and with peace? That's exactly how the disciples were feeling in John chapter 14. Now, unlike you, granted, they had Jesus with them in the flesh for three years, but now, suddenly, He's about to go away. He's going to die, and the weight of His imminent departure is beginning to sink in for these eleven men. Their hearts are being crushed in this moment. They are devastated, as they face a lifetime of hardship and trial and difficulty and suffering with no Jesus, and they know there is no way they can do this thing without Jesus, that their hearts are churning with questions. What are we going to do? How can we go on? They feel like it 's all over, like they 're about to be abandoned and left alone, their hearts are troubled, their hearts are afraid, and they have anything but peace in this moment and Some of you this morning, in your trials and in your difficulties, feel like these disciples and jesus goal here in John chapter fourteen is to encourage troubled hearts to give hope and help and peace that 's how the chapter begins doesn 't if you look up at verse one. Jesus opens up by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. And then he starts listing off all kinds of reasons their hearts can be at ease and why our hearts can be at ease. Uh, we've been looking at these reasons for several weeks now. Uh, they are afraid of his departure, and he says, believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going away, not to abandon you, but to prepare a place in heaven for you in the Father's house. They, they long to see God. And he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. They feel like it's all over, and Jesus says to them, no, it's actually just beginning. You will go on, and you will continue my work. You will do the works that I do. In fact, you will do even greater works. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He he gives more amazing promises, so let's see what they are right now. Why don't you stand with me one more time? We stand here at Harbin's out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. And we're in John chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 15, and read on down through the end of the chapter. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, yet a little while and the world will see Me no more, but you will see Me, because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you and Me, and I and you, whoever has My commandments and keeps them, He it is who loves Me, And the words you hear is not mine, but the Father, Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. let us go from here. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that You would illuminate the text, that You would help us to understand Your holy Word, and that Your Word may help us to see and savor Jesus Christ and know and love God more. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, in our text today, the next spectacular promise that Jesus gives to the disciples is the promise of continued fellowship with Jesus. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Now, when we hear that word, commandments, we sometimes think of uh, something that is harsh, something that is cold and distant abstract rules and regulations that are designed to make you miserable. I remember a a job I once had where there was a lot of rules, a lot of regulations, a lot of commandments that we had to go by in that office, and the context of that work environment uh, was very, very harsh. My boss was a bully, and the main motivation for any of us following the rules was that we didn't want to get on our boss's bad side Now, that's not what we think should think of when we read this verse. It's not harsh and cold and unrelational. It's the opposite of that. Jesus is not saying here, I'm the boss, obey these rules or else you're going to get it. Instead, in addition to the word commandment in verse 15, what other word do we see? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, you will keep my words. Jesus is framing the discussion in the context of a love relationship between he and the disciples. He talks like this again in verse 21. He says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. You see, we love Jesus, and the keeping of his words, the cherishing of his words is the natural outflow of that love relationship. It's like a like a parent getting on his knees and, and looking into the eyes of his child, saying, I love you, my son. Hear my words, know them live by them. When I speak, it is for your good. Trust my words. Bank on my words. Hang on to my words, son. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm not abandoning you. I'm not forsaking you. My words, I leave with you. Love them. Hang on to them. Cherish them. They will be your very life. What Jesus is promising his disciples, what he is promising you is continuous fellowship, even after he goes away, Jesus is inviting us into an ongoing fellowship that will be rooted in his words, in the commandments of Jesus. And, and for us today, the very words of Jesus, his commandments, are found in the Scriptures. And so, if you really love Jesus, and, and if you really have fellowship with Jesus, you're going to hold on to his words, you're going to make his words your life. There are many people who call themselves Christians, but their lives do not revolve around the words of Jesus. They don't revolve around the Scriptures, or they pick and choose which words they want and which words they reject, kind of like what Thomas Jefferson did, who took a razor blade to the sections of the Gospels that he didn't like, and he made his own Bible with that. Now, we might think that that's a bit over the top, but But friends, so-called Christians do this with Jesus all of the time. Friends, this whole book, not just the red letters in your Bible, is the very word of Christ. It's all for Him, from Him, and about Him. So the question is, will you rip out Leviticus and toss it in the garbage because it's bloody and his words are offensive and reminds us that the sinner deserves death in the presence of a holy God? Or will you take a razor blade to Romans chapter 1 that, that condemns the immoral sexual activities that our world today applauds? Many people rip and cut their Bibles, uh, not literally, but but they may do so practically when they reject any part of this book. And to reject any part of this book doesn't mean uh, that you're simply rejecting a bunch of abstract, arbitrary, impersonal rules It means that you are rejecting the divine author who inspired them, which means you really don't love God. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So such a person there who is rejecting his words has no fellowship with God. So the keeping of Jesus' word is not just some sort of cold abstract rule-keeping, but we see instead that it's part of the fabric of an actual love relationship between the believer and God. Jesus says that fellowship will revolve around my words, but there's more. If you think about this relationship exclusively in terms of Jesus' words, then what you have is essentially a long-distance relationship. But remember, it is the fear of Jesus' absence the fear of separation that is breaking the heart of these disciples and is causing them so much anxiety. But notice that Jesus promises a fellowship in which they will still experience His presence. That's my next observation in this text, is that we have the promise of the presence of Jesus. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you Forever. Now, what, what Jesus is getting at here is that He Himself has been a helper to His disciples. But now, He's going away, but another helper is going to come to them, and Jesus, in verse 25, identifies this helper as the Holy Spirit. That's the another helper that Jesus is talking about. Now, in, in, the, in the Greek, in the New Testament, it was written in, in first century Koine Greek. In the Greek, there are two words that can be translated as another. One is allos. alas. And one is heteros. Both can be, tra- both are translated as another, but, but there's, there's different shades of meaning to that. Uh, the, the one word, uh, heteros means, uh, another of a different kind. Uh, and, and then the other word is the word alos, which means another of the same kind. So, going back to our text here, John 14, 16, can anybody guess what Greek word for another Jesus uses here? Jesus says, I'm going to send you another helper. Jesus doesn't use heteros, another of a different kind. He uses alos, another of the same kind. The Holy Spirit is another helper of exactly the same kind. This has massive implications on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Namely, that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force, like so many people believe. He's not some sort of power that you you tap into, like like plugging into a a wall socket. He's a person. What's more, he's not a lesser person than Jesus. He's not a second-string deity. That was the case. If Jesus was going to send a heteros, another of a different kind that actually would be no comfort. That would be of no encouragement to the disciples. If Jesus is going to encourage them by telling them about someone who's going to come after him, that person better be as good as Jesus, right? That person better have the same credentials as Jesus. He better have the same power as Jesus, the same resources as Jesus, else there is no comfort in what Jesus is saying here would actually be depressing. Imagine. Imagine you were in the hospital and you were about to undergo major surgery. It's a life and death situation. But you've got the very best doctor in the world. He has a 100% success rate. So you're feeling pretty good about that. But imagine if, as you were inhaling the anesthesia, and you were starting to go under, And and the vision is starting to get blurry. You hear faintly the doctor saying, as you're passing out, listen, I have to go now. But don't worry. Let not your heart be troubled. I've got a first-year med student coming in to lead this surgery. He's never done this before, but he's pretty smart. He's pretty resourceful. He got straight A's, so you'll be in good hands. And then all goes black. Now, would that be encouraging? Would that help you you deal with your fear and anxiety? Would that help your troubled heart? No, that would make things worse in that moment. What you need is not a heteros, but an alos, another of 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 the same kind. And that's what the Holy Spirit is. He is God of very God, as is Jesus. Remember... We have one God who exists as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so Jesus' promise of a coming helper is not the promise of some impersonal, unloving uh, force. And it's not the promise of a second-string heavenly being. You're not getting the JV squad with the Holy Spirit. It's, It's not the promise of an angel it's the promise of the coming of God Himself. And all Christians have this mighty helper, not just charismatics. Scripture says in Romans 8 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So, flipping that and saying that positively, all who belong to God, all who are believers, have the Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. Now, let me push you a little bit with a question. Imagine if Jesus Christ was standing right here in the flesh this morning, and and He said He would grant each of you some personal time, a personal interview. Can you imagine how awesome that would be? Here's the amazing thing. Jesus Christ, through the Scriptures, is telling you this morning that what you have in the Holy Spirit right now is superior to having Jesus Christ here in the flesh. I wonder if you believe that. Some of you are like, I don't know about that one, Demer. And you know what? I would be right there with you if it wasn't for what Jesus says in the same conversation a few verses later in chapter 16, verse 7, when he tells his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. It is to your advantage. It is better for you, Jesus says, if I go and the Spirit comes. How might that be? Well, imagine again if Jesus was here on this world in the flesh like He was 2,000 years ago. And imagine that He is in Jerusalem right now. And everyone knew He was there. Can you imagine the swarms of people flocking to Jerusalem? Can you imagine the airlines fighting for routes to the Middle East? It would be virtually impossible to get there. Every mode of transportation would be booked up. And then if, if somehow you did manage to get over there, there would be miles and miles of backed up cars and people on foot and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. You'd come to come there to see Jesus. you come there to have a relationship with Jesus and you would never see Him. Friends, when Jesus was walking around on earth, He had a very close communion and fellowship with maybe a few dozen people in one tiny geographic area. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who comes not in bodily form but as spirit, comes to all of his people all over the world. As the prophet Joel prophesied long ago about a coming day when God would initiate a global outpouring of his spirit to all peoples everywhere. Jesus says to his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go and that the Spirit comes. And, and again, if the Spirit is anything other than God, then it, it, then it would not be to your advantage. It would be a trade down. It would be a downgrade to something worse. Jesus says, I will send you another helper, another of the same kind, my equal. Some translations say helper. Some say counselor. Some say comforter. Some say Advocate there there are there's a wide that that word in the greek has a wide range of of meaning and there are different translations and different bibles because it's hard to express the meaning of that greek word in english it's hard to capture that uh, the greek word is is uh is paraclete it, it, it comes from the the greek para alongside and kaleo to call i will send another to come alongside you Uh, Jesus is saying that that I've I've been been with you. I've been with you as someone who has walked among you, who has walked alongside you. Now I'm sending you another of the same kind to do the same thing. This idea of a paraclete conveys somebody who is encouraging you. Somebody who is supporting you, who's giving you what you need to move forward. Somebody who is on your side and helping you to do what you need to do. Paraclete also has legal connotations. In the 21st century, when you are accused, you hire a lawyer. But in the 1st century, uh, you couldn't just walk down the street to the office of Abraham and sons. Uh, If you were in trouble you were brought into a, a court, you needed somebody to represent you, to stick up for you, to speak on your behalf, somebody who knows you and your situation, somebody who you can count on to vouch for you and be by your side, fighting for you on your behalf. And who would you go to back then? You would go to your best friend who would take up your cause and plead your case. For three years, Jesus had been by the side of the disciples. He had been their paraclete, their encourager, their helper, the the one who strengthened them and came alongside them and equipped them, and and, and he became the very best of friends to these men. Jesus is telling them, do not let your heart be troubled. I've been your helper. I've been your teacher. I've been your advocate. And I know you are sad that I'm going, but I'm going to send you another advocate And He will be with you. He'll be that faithful friend you need to get you through everything that is coming your way. And He will equip you to do everything God has called you to do. And the main way the Spirit provides comfort and encouragement and equipping is through His Word. Again, verse 17. Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. Go down to verse 26 but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus' promise that the Spirit would bring to remembrance His teachings is evidenced by the New Testament that is in our Bibles today. So what we hold here is not the, the musings and opinions of mere men, but as Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.20, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man... But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There are no forgotten teachings of Jesus. The apostles remembered it all through the ministry of the Spirit. Now, now the application of this aspect of the Spirit's ministry to you and I is that all we need is here in this book from the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And the Spirit will work in your life and in my life to, to help you learn and understand and apply the revelation that He's already given. As the Apostle John writes later on to all believers in 1st John chapter 2, talks about how believers, He talks about this anointing that you have received from Him It abides in you, this anointing, and teaches you about everything and is true. And so the Spirit of truth causes us to see and understand what we need to know about God and what we need to know about the world and what we need to know about ourselves. And this this is meant to bring hope and comfort to our troubled hearts as we see reality through the lens of the truth of the Holy Spirit-inspired Word. As the psalmist says, wrote in Psalm 119, he says, Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise or your word gives me life. Now, look at the encouragement Jesus gives in verse 17 when he's talking about this helper. He says, You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. As the disciples scatter in the years to come, As some face persecution and prison and even death, the Holy Spirit will be with all of them every step of the way. God is not distant from you, Harbin's church. The Spirit is with you. What's more, He actually dwells in you. Now, here's the amazing thing. The promise, this promise that the Holy Spirit will dwell with and in the believers touches precisely on the concern of these disciples. They were concerned that Jesus would depart from them and that their relationship with Him would be severed, and there would be this separation. And yet, I want you to notice this scripture in Romans chapter 8, and Paul here is addressing all believers, and he says this, "'You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit,' that's the Holy Spirit, "'if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. "'Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him.'" But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, notice verse 9 that says, who dwells in you? Verse 9, the spirit, spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. But now look at verse 10. Who is it that is dwelling in you? Christ. to, To have the Christ is in you, to have the Spirit dwelling in you, brothers and sisters, is the same as having Christ dwell in you. Now, if you go back to John 14, 17, Jesus says about the Spirit, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So, in light of what we just learned in Romans 8... I hope you're following here. Jesus' promise to the disciples of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives is really a promise of the presence of Jesus in their lives. You see, it is to their advantage that Jesus departs physically and ascends to heaven so he can return to them in the Spirit when they will need him most. As soon as they will scatter to, to, to spread the gospel to the nations and face the uh, the much trial and much difficulty and much persecution. And that intimate fellowship they enjoyed with Jesus for three years will continue through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, even when they're in different cities separate from one another. Isn't that amazing? And the Spirit will be in them, sustaining them encouraging them, and equipping them in their mission. That's a promise not just for them, but for us. Jesus says in verse 18, I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you alone like a fatherless child. Jesus says He will personally come to them. This is not merely referring to His resurrection. Although I'm fine with saying that that includes his resurrection. But this is not merely talking about that. It's not merely a promise for the 11 disciples. And the reason why I think this is because in verse 22, when Judas, not Iscariot, is perplexed by Jesus' promise to come and show himself to them, but not to the world, and and Judas asks, how's this going to be? Jesus responds in verse 23 by saying, if anyone loves me. Jesus is saying here that the promise of his presence is for anyone who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Again, there's that emphasis on Jesus' words. And again, it's not about obeying harsh, abstract commands. There is a love relationship going on here. And he says, and my father will love him, and we will come to him. This promise of Jesus to not leave his disciples as orphans, but to come to them, is not about the resurrection, instead, as one preacher writes, it is a consequence of the resurrection. That as that a consequence of the resurrection, when Jesus ascends to the Father, the Holy Spirit is poured forth upon the church. Jesus, as it were, by the Holy Spirit, comes to his disciples again. And that promise, Jesus says, is for anyone who loves Jesus. Now, this idea of Jesus and the believer being together has already been touched upon at the beginning of this chapter, hasn't it? When Jesus says, in the Father's house in, in heaven, there are many rooms or dwelling places. And, and he says, you will be there one day. Now that's good, but it gets even better. Because now, in verse 23, Jesus says that you don't have to wait until heaven to experience him now. He says that if you love me, I and the Father will come and make our home with you. That word for home is the same word in verse 2 translated as rooms. You, You will have a dwelling place in the Father's house later on, disciples. But until then, I and the Father will come and make our dwelling place in your heart right now. You are never alone, disciples. You are never alone, Harbin's church. When you get up in the morning, Jesus is there. In the workplace, Jesus is with you. When you are discouraged and depressed, Jesus is with you. When you are afraid, when the doctor says the test results you've been dreading confirm that illness, when you are sharing the gospel with a lost person and your knees are knocking in fear, when you are standing at the graveside of a loved one mourning for them, when you yourself... Find your own life slipping away and you are at death's door, you can say with the psalmist, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. In the days of old, God manifested his presence in a special way in the tabernacle and in the temple, but In this new age, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 that your body is the temple of the Spirit of holiness who dwells within you. You're never alone, Christian. You're never by yourself. Jesus says to you in Matthew 28, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus, through the Spirit, comes to His people. And in his coming, we are reminded that we belong to God and that God is our Father because it's not just the Spirit that comes to the believer. It's not it's not only Christ, as wonderful as that is, but again, Jesus says in verse 23, we, the Father and I, will come to him and make our home with him. The Father is here with you too. The Father is in you too. The entire Trinity takes up residence in you. Some of you know my background. I grew up in a home where my father was a violent alcoholic, and there was always this sense of unease and uncertainty when he'd go off on one of his drunken binges, and our doors are locked, and he's trying to kick that thing down, and we're waiting for the police to come, hoping that they'll get there in time. And there were times when I I felt like my father would literally murder my mom and murder me, that we were going to be like the next statistic on the news, murder-suicide. And I lived with a spirit of fear because of this father that I had. But the doctrine of God's adoption and His fatherhood over me has become very precious to me because I know that my heavenly Father is the exact opposite of what I experienced in the home growing up. I have a, a father who I can rely on, a father who I can count on, who I know will never leave me or forsake me, even in the toughest of times. And the Holy Spirit reminds me and reminds you of our sonship to a perfect father. And if we are sons and daughters of a perfect father, whom shall we fear? As the Scripture says in Romans 8, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. By the way, this whole talk of being sons of God in the Bible is not sexist. It actually is encouraging to women back in the first century who were the heirs, the sons, in particular, firstborns, and, and this New Testament language uh, of, of the, the New Testament speaking of the entire people of God, whether they are men or women, and, and, and giving them all sonship language it is an incredible elevation of the, of the dignity of, of women and very unusual in the first century. We are all equally children of God, and if children, then heirs. And another ministry of the Holy Spirit is to constantly convince us of our adoption as children into the household of God. And if you're an adopted child of God, you are never going to be cast out of the Father's house. And as we learn in John 14, Jesus says, the Father actually comes and makes His home with you. So, in the Spirit... We have one who is just like Jesus dwelling with us and in us. Another of the same kind. In the Spirit, we have an advocate and friend. In the Spirit, we have the presence of Christ who will be with us always. In the Spirit, we have the truth that will teach us all we need to know. In the Spirit, we have the spirit of adoption reminding us we have a place at the Father's table. And and what is the result of these truths as we internalize them and apply them? It should be peace and we see this promise of peace from Jesus. Verse 27, Jesus says, "'Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid.'" Notice that this peace that Jesus gives is different than the world's peace. Worldly peace comes in different shapes and forms, but It's qualitatively different than what Jesus is talking about. Sometimes, excuse me, sometimes when people think of peace, they think simply of the absence of conflict. You can have peace between a husband and a wife because they're not fighting, and yet they're also not talking to one another. There's a tension there. There's an unease there. There, That's not peace. When, When a drug addict takes that next hit, when the, when the porn addict takes that next click, they may feel in the moment a sense of ease and relaxation, but in the end, their minds are plagued with guilt and turmoil and families suffer collateral damage and there is no peace. People can, can feel a sense of peace when their income increases or when the test results from the doctor come back fine or when they're on vacation, Those are worldly experiences of peace. But but you can see how they are all temporary. They're all not reliable. And they're solely dependent on external circumstances. But Jesus offers something better. He says, my peace I give to you, so don't let your hearts be troubled or afraid. Now, now the word that the Jews had for peace was the word shalom. And the concept of shalom... is is not a fleeting, fickle, superficial kind of peace, but a a deep, solid, and lasting peace. It carries the idea of um, satisfaction, contentment, completeness. Now, in the New Testament, the the word is the the Greek word, arene, uh, very similar to shalom, and it connotes a soul that is at rest, that is tranquil. This is not a fleeting, shifting, uh, shaky peace, not dependent on circumstances, but, but instead is a deep sense of inner well-being and security, regardless of anything else. To experience shalom is to echo the sentiments of, of Horatio Spafford, who is no stranger to difficulty, having lost his business in the great Chicago fire, having lost his daughters in in a tragic accident at sea, and yet in the midst of his pain, he writes one of the greatest hymns of all time. We sing it here sometimes. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's shalom. That's what Jesus offers. That's what Paul promises in Philippians, a peace that passes all understanding. Uh, that, that, That kind of peace is another part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Galatians tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is peace. So many Christians seem to lack peace. So many Christians are in turmoil in their minds and in their hearts. They're stirred up and discontent, and angry. Why? So often is because Christians have become like the world in regards to their concept of peace and where peace is to be found. But the Bible tells us that it is found through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and the Bible tells us that we are filled with the Spirit when we let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. Show me a Christian who is sinfully angry and discontent and insecure and in despair, and I will show you a Christian who is not letting their, their minds and hearts be governed by the truths and promises of God's Word, and consequently, they are not filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Christians have the Holy Spirit, but there's a difference between actually having the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. We can, that's another sermon, another time. Now, many Christians are living in a way and they're, they're not being influenced by the Holy Spirit and not experiencing the benefits of His ministry. And so consequently, they're not experiencing the fruit of the Spirit, which is peace. But the Scriptures say in Psalm 119, 165, abundant peace belongs to those who love Your instruction, who love Your Word. Nothing makes them stumble. Jesus offers peace. He promises it to the disciples in the middle of the blackest possible circumstance. If Peace is solely based on external circumstances, then Jesus is crazy, promising and offering peace. Jesus is about to be executed. The disciples are about to scatter. Soon, intense persecution will come, and yet there can still be peace. And the great irony is, is that Jesus talks of peace in the midst of a time of intense battle and cosmic conflict. In verse 30, Jesus says the ruler of this world is coming. You know who that is. That's the devil. In this moment, all the forces of hell are marshaled against Jesus. The darkest and blackest moment in the history of the world is about to happen. Now, Satan has already entered into Judas, and Judas has departed to betray Jesus. Satan now has his eye on Peter to tempt him to deny Jesus, and Peter is going to fail. All of the disciples are about to scatter and abandon Jesus. The religious leaders plot to destroy Jesus. Their plot is about to come to fruition. And the evil Roman authorities are primed and ready to nail Jesus to a cross. And yet, Jesus talks about peace. And the peace that Jesus promises will come to us through great violence as our Lord is brutally slaughtered. Don Carson notes that the Pax Romana, peace of Rome, was won and maintained by a brutal sword. Not a few Jews thought the Messianic peace would have to be secured by still a mightier sword. Instead, it was secured by an innocent man, who suffered and died at the hands of the Romans, of the Jews, and of all of us. And by his death, he effected for his own followers peace with God, and therefore, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. And so, whoever places their faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus on the cross enjoys peace with God, because the one thing that has separated them from God and put them at war with God, namely their sin, has been dealt with through His sacrifice. The devil has no claim, no power over Jesus, and that, by the way, is proven in Jesus' resurrection. And so, the cosmic conflict is ultimately won, the Spirit is given, and peace is secured. And for those who are in Christ, the devil has no claim over you either, and that brings great peace. If you're here as an unbeliever, you can have no confidence of lasting peace in your life. But that can change. It really can. Receive Christ as Savior and Lord. Trust in His sacrifice on the cross as the sole and sufficient payment for your sins. Repent of your sins. Turn turn from your own way and go Christ's way, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you're here this morning as a believer, know that Jesus is with you. He's not far off and distant. Jesus is beside you. Indeed, Jesus is in you. He will never leave or forsake you. You are never alone. Jesus and the Father have made your hearts their home. God will never leave or forsake you. Jesus has given you everything you need, everything you need right now through His Spirit, through the other helper. He's given you everything you need to accomplish all that God has called you to do for His glory, whether that be sharing the gospel, whether that being a God-honoring husband or wife or employee or parent or single person. In the Spirit, you have the sufficient resources to live for Christ, to suffer for Christ, and even to die for Christ. He will not leave you in this life. He will not leave you when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death and when your final breath is exhaled. He will guide you safely to your eternal heavenly home. He is with you always, now, and forever. Let's pray.